Section 14 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Li Huang Chang, Part 1. 1823 to 1901, The Far East, by W. A. P. Martin, D.D., L.L.D. Introductory. Five years ago, Earl Lee was at the head of the Sungli Yaman, or Foreign Office in Peking. The present writer, having known him long and intimately, called one morning to request a letter of recommendation to aid in raising money for an international institute projected by the Reverend Dr. Reed. He's got one letter, why does he want another? asked Lee, in a tone of mingled surprise and irritation. True, said I, but that is from the Sangili Yaman. Nobody in America knows anything about the Yaman. What he wants is a personal letter from you. Because the only Chinese name besides Confucius that is known outside of China is Li Huang Chang. I'll give it, I'll give it, he exclaimed, smiling from ear to ear at the thought of his worldwide reputation. This was taking him on his weak side, but it was in fact not flattery. Over 40 years ago, Lee's rising star first came to view in connection with operations against the rebels in the vicinity of Shanghai, and from that day to this, every war, domestic or foreign, has served to raise it higher and make it shine the brighter. It reached its zenith in 1901, when after settling terms of peace with several foreign powers, he passed off the stage at the ripe age of fourscore. What better type to set forth his age and nation than the man who, through a long career of unexampled activity, won for himself a triple crown of literary, military, and civil honors. In physique, he was a noble specimen of his race, over six feet in height, and in his earlier years uncommonly handsome. The first half of his existence was passed in comparative obscurity at Hofei in Anhui, a region remote from contact with foreign nations. It was there his character was formed, on native models, there he carried off the higher prizes of the literary arena, and there he became fitted for the role of China's typical statesman. His career in outline may be stated in a few words. His native province being overrun by rebels, he passed from the schoolroom to the camp and got his earliest lessons in the military art under the leadership of the eminent viceroy Tsang Ko Fan. The neighboring province of Kiangsu, falling into the hands of rebel hordes a few years later, he won renown by recapturing its principal cities by the aids of such men as the American Ward and the English Gordon. His success as a general made him governor of Kiangsu, and his success as governor raised him to the rank of viceroy, holding for many years a post at one or other of the foci of foreign trade north or south. Beyond the borders of China, he was twice sent on special embassies, and once he made the tour of the globe, but his most brilliant achievement was in twice making peace on honorable terms when his country was lying prostrate before a victorious enemy. It remains to expand this incomparable catalog, but to make intelligible that remarkable series of events in which he bore such a conspicuous part, we must first invite our readers to accompany us in a historical retrospect in which we shall point out the opening and growth of foreign intercourse. 1. Intercourse with China by Land 
of the nature of that intercourse in its earlier period there exists a monument that speaks volumes that is none other than the great wall which hugest of the works of man stretches along the northern frontier of china proper for one thousand five hundred miles from the sea to the desert of gobi erected to fifty five b c it shows that even at that early date the enemies most dreaded by the chinese were on the north yet how signally it failed to effect its purpose. For since that epoch, the provinces of northern China have passed no fewer than seven centuries under Tartar sway. Two Tartar dynasties have succeeded in subjugating the whole empire, and they have transmitted beyond the seas a reputation which quite eclipses the fame of China's ancient sovereigns. In fact, that which first made china known to the western world was its conquest by the mongols in the thirteenth century barbarous nomads with longing eyes forever directed to the sunny plains of the south they also conquered india bringing under their sceptre the two richest regions of the globe of genghis and kubla it may be asserted that they realized a more extended dominion than alexander caesar or napoleon ever dreamed of but extended empire like expanded gold exchanges solid strength for feeble splendor their tenure of china was of short duration less than a century in india however their successors the great moguls continued to maintain a semblance of sovereignty even down to our own times when they were wiped from the blackboard for having taken part in the sepoy mutiny Liberal beyond precedent, Kublai Khan encouraged the establishment of a Christian bishopric, in which John de Monte Corvino was the first representative of the Holy See. He also welcomed those adventurous Italians, the Polos, and sought to make use of them to open communication with Europe. Yet we cannot forbear to express a doubt whether, aside from the Christian religion, Europe in that age had much in the way of civilization to impart to China. Three of the native dynasties which preceded the Mongol conquest made themselves famous by advancing the interests of civilization. The House of Han, B.C. 202 to A.D. 221, restored the sacred books, which the builder of the Great Wall had destroyed in order to obliterate all traces of feudalism and make the people submit to a centralized government. Even down to the present day, the Chinese are proud to describe themselves as sons of Han, the House of Tang, A.D. 618 to 908, is noted above all for the literary style of its prose writers and the genius of its poets. In South China, the people are fond of calling themselves sons of Tang. The House of Sung, A.D. 970 to 1127, shows a galaxy of philosophers and scholars whose expositions and speculations are accepted as the standard of orthodoxy. More accurate reasoners it would be difficult to find in any country, and in the line of erudition they have never been surpassed. It is reported that in 643 the Emperor Theodosius sent an envoy to China with presents of rubies and emeralds. Nestorian missionaries also presented themselves at court. The Emperor received them with respect, heard them recite the articles of their creed, and ordered a temple to be erected for them at his capital. This was in the palmy period of the Tangs, when the frontiers of the empire had been pushed to the borders of the Caspian Sea. If China, in part or in whole, was sometimes conquered by Tartars, it is only fair to state that the greatest of the native sovereigns more than once reduced the extramural Tartars to subjection. 
Between the two races there existed an almost unceasing conflict, which had the effect of civilizing the one and of preventing the other from lapsing into lethargy. About B.C. 100, Su Wu, one of China's famous diplomatists, was sent on an embassy to the Grand Khan of Tartary. An ode, which he addressed to his wife on the eve of his perilous expedition, speaks alike for the domestic affections of the Chinese and for their ancient literary culture. Twin trees whose boughs together twine, two birds that guard one nest, will soon be far asunder torn as sunrise from the west. Hearts knit in childhood's innocence, long bound in hymen's ties, one goes to distant battlefields, one sits at home and sighs. Like carrier dove, those seas divide, I'll seek my lonely mate. But if afar I find a grave, you'll mourn my hapless fate. To us the future's all unknown, in memory seek relief. Come, touch the chords you know so well, and let them soothe our grief. 2. Intercourse by Sea in 1388, the Mongols were expelled. The Christian bishopric was swept away and left no trace. But a book of the younger Polo, describing the wealth of China, gave rise to marvelous results. Together with the magnetic needle, which originated in China, it led to centuries of effort to open a way by sea to that far-off fairy land. It was from Marco Polo that Columbus derived his inspiration to seek a short road to the Far East by steering to the West finding a new world athwart his pathway. It was the same needle, if not the same book, that impelled Vasco da Gama to push his way across the Indian Ocean after the Cape of Good Hope had been doubled by Bartholomew Diaz. A century later, the same book led Henry Hudson to search for some inlet or strait that might open a way to China, when instead of it, he discovered the port of New York. The Mariner's Compass, which wrought this revolution on the map of the world, is only one of many discoveries made by the ancient Chinese, which, unfruitful in their native land, have, after a change of climate, transformed the face of the globe. The polarity of the lodestone was observed in China over a thousand years before the Christian era. One of their emperors, it is said, provided certain foreign ambassadors with south-pointing chariots so that they may not go astray on their way home. To this day, the magnetic needle in China continues to be called by a name which means that it points to the south. It heads a long list of contraries in the notions of the Chinese as compared with our own, such, for example, as beginning to read at the back of a book, placing the seat of honor on the left hand, keeping to the left in passing on the street, with many others, so numerous as to suggest that the same law that placed their feet opposite to ours must have turned their heads the other way. To the Chinese, the south-pointing needle continued to be a mere plaything to be seen every day in the sedan chair of a mandarin or in wheeled vehicles. If employed on the water, it was only used in coasting voyages. So with gunpowder, of which the Arabs were transmitters, not inventors. In other lands, it revolutionized the art of war, clothing their people with irresistible might, while in its native home, it remained undeveloped and served chiefly for fireworks. Have we not seen, even in this our day, the rank and file of the Chinese army equipped with bows and arrows? The few who were provided with firearms, for want of gun locks, had to set them off by a slow match of burning tow, and cannon, meant to guard the mouth of the Peho, were trained on the channel and fixed on immovable frames. The art of printing was known in China five centuries before it made its way to Europe. The Confucian classics have been engraved on stone to secure them from being again burned up, 
as they had been by the builder of the great wall. The rubbings taken from those stones were printing. It required nothing but the substitution of wood for stone and of relievo for intaglio to give that art the form it now has. The smallest scrap of printed paper in the lining of a tea chest or wrapped about a roll of silk would suffice to suggest the whole art to a mind like that of Gutenberg. In China it never emerged from the state of wood engraving. The Peking Gazette, the oldest newspaper in the world, is printed on divisible types, but they are of wood, not metal, more than one attempt to introduce metallic types having proved unsuccessful, for the want of that happy alloy known as type metal. It is from us that they have learned the art of casting type, especially that splendid achievement, the making of stereotype plates, and later electrotype plates, by the aid of electricity and acid solutions. Chemistry, from which this beautiful art takes its rise, carries us back to China, for it was there that alchemy had its birth, as I have elsewhere shown. Man's first desire is long life, his second to be rich. The Taoist philosophy commenced with the former before the Christian era, but it was not long in finding its way to the latter. A powerful impulse was thus given to research in the three departments of science, chemistry, botany, and geography. As in the case of gunpowder, the Arabs transmitted these discoveries to the West, and along with them the Chinese doctrine as to the twofold objects of alchemic studies, the elixir of life and the philosopher's stone. From this double root sprang the chemistry of the West, which in no mean sense has fulfilled its promise by prolonging life and enriching mankind. In all these, the West has performed the part of a nursing mother, but she has brought the nursling back full-grown and prepared to repay its obligation to its true parent by effective service. Portuguese merchants made their way to Canton early in the 16th century, but it was not till the latter part of that century that Catholic missionaries entered on their Grand Crusade. In 1601, the Jesuit pioneer Matteo Ricci and his associates, impelled by religion and armed with science, presented themselves at the court of Peking. The Chinese had been able to reckon the length of their year with remarkable accuracy 2,000 years before the time of Christ, but their science had made no headway. The missionaries found their calendar in a state of confusion, vanquished the native astronomers in fair competition, and were formally installed as keepers of the imperial observatory and these missionaries supervised the casting of the bronze instruments which have since been taken to Berlin. This honor they retained even after the fall of the native dynasty that patronized them. When the Manchus effected their conquest in 1644, not only were the Jesuit missionaries left in charge of the observatory, but the heir apparent was placed under their instruction. Coming to the throne in 1662, under the now illustrious title of Kanghi, the young prince showed himself a generous patron as he had previously been a respectful pupil. He was apparently not averse to the idea of his people's adopting Christianity as their national religion and allowed the missionaries a free hand to plant churches throughout the vast interior. Rarely, if ever, has so fine an opportunity offered for making an easy conquest of a pagan empire. It was lost through the jealousy of contending societies and especially through the blunder of an infallible pope. The Dominicans denounced the Jesuits for tolerating the practice of pagan rites, such as the worship of ancestors, and for employing for God the name of a pagan deity. The name which they then objected to was Shang-Ti, Supreme Ruler, a venerable designation for the supreme power found in the earliest of the Chinese canonical books, and at this day accepted by a large proportion of Protestant missionaries. 
The question as to its fitness was referred to the emperor, who decided in favor of the Jesuits. It was then brought before the papal see, condemned as idolatrous, and Tian Chu, the lord of heaven, adopted in its stead. That Shang-Ti, however pure in origin, had come to be applied to a whole class of deities was perfectly true, but the name proposed in its stead was not free from a taint of idolatry. Qian Chu, Lord of Heaven, being one of eight divinities and worshipped along with Ti Chu, Lord of Earth, Hai Chu, Lord of Sea, etc. The manner in which his opinions had been set aside by the Pope had no doubt a repelling influence on the mind of the Emperor, so that if he had ever felt inclined to embrace Christianity, he drew back in his later years. Not only so, but he left behind him a series of maxims in which he censures the foreign creed and warns his people against it. These maxims were ordered to be read in public by mandarins, and they continue to be recited and expounded as a sort of religious ritual. Is it surprising that this lost opportunity was followed by a century and a half of open persecution? That most of the churches survived not only attests the zeal with which the faith had been propagated, it throws a pleasing light on the force of the Chinese character. At the dawn of our new epoch, there were still some half a million converts, with here and there a foreign father hiding in their midst. In bringing about this change of policy, there was indeed another influence at work. Had not the Emperor of China heard some rumors of what was going on in the dominion of his cousin, the Great Mogul, how the French were dispossessing the Portuguese, and how the English later on succeeded in expelling the French? How could they doubt that a large community of native Christians would act as an auxiliary to any foreign invader? A suspicion of this kind had in fact sprung up under the preceding dynasty. In consequence of it, not a single seaport except Macau was open to foreign trade, and when foreigners went to Canton, they were lodged in a suburb and not allowed to penetrate within the walls of the provincial capital. Such misgivings as to the designs of foreigners we find strikingly expressed in a book of that period called Strange Stories of an Idle Student. One story is as follows. When red-haired barbarians first appeared on our coast, they were not allowed to come on shore. They begged, however, to be permitted to spread a carpet on which to dry their goods, and this being granted, they took the carpet by its corners and stretched it so that it covered several acres. On this they debarked in great force, and drawing their swords took possession of the surrounding country. 3. The Opium War the first great event that woke China from her dream of solitary grandeur was the war with England, which broke out in 1839 and was closed three years later by the Treaty of Nanking. It was not, however, all that was needed to effect that object. It made the giant rub her eyes and give a reluctant assent to terms imposed by superior force. But many a rude lesson was still required before she came to perceive her true position as on the lower side of an inclined plane. To bring her to this discovery, four more foreign wars were to follow before the end of the century, culminating in a siege of Peking and massacres throughout the northern provinces, which may be looked on as the fifth act in a long and bloody tragedy. In the last three wars, Li Hong Chang was a prominent actor. In the first two, he took no part, yet was it the shock which they gave to the empire that drove him from a life of literary seclusion to do battle in a more public arena. The Opium War of 1839 is not improperly so designated, but nothing is more erroneous than to infer that it was waged by England for the purpose of forcing the product of her Indian poppy fields on the markets of China, 
opium was the occasion, not the cause. The cause, if we are to put it in a single word, was the overbearing arrogance of an oriental despotism which refused to recognize any equal in the family of nations. In the Straits settlements and in the seaports of India, Chinese merchants had been brought under sway of the bewitching narcotic. It found its way to their southern seaports, and without being recognized as an article of commerce, the trade expanded with startling rapidity. The emperor, Tao Kuang, one of the most humane of rulers, resolved to take measures for the suppression of the vice. He had come to the throne in 1820, and there is a story that he was moved to action by the untimely fate of his eldest son, who had fallen a victim to the seductive poison. Commissioner Lin, whom he selected to carry out his prohibitory policy, was a fit instrument for such a master, equally virtuous in his aims and equally tyrannical in his mode of proceeding. Arriving at Canton, his first object was to get possession of the forbidden drug, which was stored on ships outside the harbor. This he thought to accomplish by surrounding the whole foreign community by soldiers and threatening them with death if the opium was not promptly surrendered. While its owners or their agents hesitated, Captain Elliot, the British superintendent of trade, came up from Macau and demanded to share the duress of his nationals. He then called on them to deliver up the drug to him to be used in the service of the Queen for the ransom of the lives of her subjects, assuring them that they would be reimbursed from the public treasury. No fewer than 21,000 chests, valued at $9 million, were brought in from the opium ships and formally handed over to Commissioner Lin. The foreign community was set free and the drug destroyed by being mixed with quicklime. End of section 14.